0: We know that youth sport is incredibly emotionally charged and the environment has such an impact on behavior. One of the first things you need to do is consider the environment you're creating.
1: Welcome to episode, um, I don't know what episode number this is. We're recording them entirely out of sequence. Hugh, you got any ideas?
2: Um, Let's say it's episode 17.
1: Okay, that'll do. Um, Anyway, it's another exciting installment of 80% Mental. Uh, My name's Dr. Pete Olushaga, and I'm here, as always, with Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, what's going on? How are you taking to your new role as a parent?
2: Uh, It's definitely interesting. I'm not in charge. I'm not competent. Uh, I'm now immune to a fairly reasonable degree of poop, Um, but at times it can be too much whenever you get a big one. But it's the learning curve and uh, yeah, incompetence is what breeds success, isn't that right? Something like that. Learning curves and stuff.
1: Well, speaking of parenting, uh, we're starting as usual with a question linked to some aspect of sport and performance psychology. Um, We're going to try and answer it with the help of a pair of experts in the next hour or so. And I think this is an episode that's going to resonate with quite a lot of people, yourself included, Hugh, um, in some capacity we've all come across the dreaded sport parent before. Coaches will be fully aware of the sport parent. Athletes will certainly be aware of the sport parent. Maybe you are a sport parent. Um, Hugh, when I I talk about sport parents, and I've kind of deliberately conjured up a particular image there, uh, what's what's going through your mind? What image springs to mind?
2: Pete, so (laughs) what I get when I think of sideline parents is the idea that you've got this overly invested parent that wants their child to be uh, at the top of their sport within six or seven months and just really overly pressured. Now, it's funny enough, I've I've come across parents like that who've said things like, yeah, I think uh, we should start considering the Olympics uh, and how to work towards that at a, a level that's so far off it. And also in a sport that requires far too many drugs for, to be giving kids. But um yeah it's that but there's also the other side of the parents which is what a lot of sport hangs on and i don't think gets enough attention but like the parent volunteers that help out with the coaches those people who are maybe future coaches that's something that i'm keen to you know talk about because i think that kind of pathway into coaching from parenting is something a lot of sports you know really benefit on and maybe Mm -hmm. don't give enough attention to what are your thoughts pete yeah well i I, i'm hoping that
1: we're going to cover Uh, both aspects of of that in this in this episode and the question really for today's episode is how to deal with forward slash be a sports parent and as I mentioned we've got two experts uh, I'd say in the studio but we're not really big time enough to have a studio uh, just yet Um, and also you know we're in lockdown at the minute as well so even if we did have a studio wouldn't be able to uh, have everyone around
2: Pete, you do realize we could have just bluffed that and said we had a studio and nobody would have known? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Anyway, continue.
1: So as as, as I mentioned, we've got two experts. Uh, We've got two experts in the studio. Um, And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce, first of all, Dr. Camilla Knight, uh, who is an associate professor at Swansea University, specializing in parental involvement in youth sport. And Camilla spent well over a decade conducting research in the area of youth sport parenting, really with the aim of improving children's sport experiences. Is that, is that right?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, uh, yeah, thank you for having me on. And it's, it's always a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk about parents' involvement in sport. And we'll address some of those things you've already set up through your wording of your questions, hopefully <laughs> through the uh, podcast.
1: Brilliant. Well, it's lovely to have you you with us. Um, Our second guest is Andy Bradshaw. Andy's been a coach for almost 30 years, mostly with England junior teams, and now with his teenage daughter's junior football team in Sheffield. Uh, Andy works for UK Coaching as a senior coach developer, supporting those who support coaches. Um, Andy, welcome to 80% Mental.
3: Thank you, uh, Peter and uh, Hugh for having me. Uh, I suppose the, the expert bit is an interesting one. I've got lots of experience <laughs> in, um, in the themes that we're going to be exploring today, uh, both from a parenting point of view and dealing with parents. Uh, whether that makes me expert or not, um, we'll, we'll see. But uh, lots of things, <laughs> to hopefully. So really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Lovely to, to have you. I'm curious about the sports that you've been involved in as well.
3: Yeah, so hockey mainly. Um, uh, I came over to Sheffield to university and, and stayed. Uh, never looked back, and have been involved with coaching hockey uh, for for that pretty much that entire period. So um, junior pathway, sort of under sixteen, under eighteen, under twenty one teams uh, for for the England junior teams. Put then the yeah the journey into uh, coaching one's daughter, um, which mm-hmm. has been. Uh, a, a significant change, just in, in emphasis. You know, they're a, a, a new uh, junior girls' team, not hugely successful because we have people that had never really played the sport before, so a new mm-hmm. to um, new to both sport and to football. So you know, it was a huge change in terms of expectations, and a le- and and certainly a very steep learning curve for me, coming from a sort of a more of a talent performance angle.
1: Well, welcome both of you to Eighty uh, Percent Mental. We're really pleased to have you have you both on today.
2: I was just thinking, what's interesting is I know Camilla and Andrew haven't actually met, but I uh, watched Camilla's talk a couple of years ago in Loughborough at the Bases Sports Site Conference, and I've known Andrew through uh, the UK Coaching Strive program for coach developers. Uh, so I'm I'm really excited today. Um, I've picked up loads off uh, both these wonderful two people um so yeah uh I'm, I'm keen to see what goes on andrew any thoughts yeah just it's
3: i find it uh most peculiar when people call me andrew it's either i'm speaking to my mother or it's sunday so <laughs> if we, can with, if we can go with andy today i'll stop looking over my shoulder and seeing if i've done something wrong <laughs>
2: That is brilliant. I'm glad I'm getting into your head already. Camilla, do you want to be called anything in particular?
0: No, I just thought that was a great illustration of the uh, enduring impact of parents there. Andy has to be called <laughs> Andy because otherwise it refer- it reminds him of his mum. So, you know, we, we've already started on the, on the topic and the impact that parents are going to have.
1: All right. We haven't even got to the first question yet and we're already witnessing the impact of parents. So, I mean, we'll, we will get to, we'll get to the first question now. And I want to start really with you, Camilla, a a brief glance at the literature in this area of sports parenting. I'll tell you that parents of athletes have got a pretty important role to play in their kids' experience of sport and and physical activity. And as I said, I painted a picture of the dreaded sport parent at the start, which was kind of tongue in cheek. But there are a lot of ways in which parents' influences can be damaging. Uh, On the flip side, though, there are a lot of ways in which parents' influences can be extremely positive in terms of their... Uh, child's experience Um, big question but what does the research tell us about all of this
0: unfortunately the research tells us it's complicated Um, for a long time we've we've definitely tried to categorize certain parental behaviors as good or appropriate and generally we would talk about those as parental support um, and anything that was kind of classified as parental support was seen as having a positive impact leading to, you know, children having greater enjoyment in sport, participating for longer, having more opportunities to reach their potential. And then on the flip side, we we had a tendency to cra- to categorise behaviours as negative or bad or pressuring. Um, and those pressuring behaviours, whether it was, you know, having excessive expectations, um, Punishing pe- uh, children if they weren't successful, etc., are associated with um, feelings of anxiety, fear of failure, potential of dropout. The reason I started with it's complicated is that as the literature's grown in this area, and it's grown massively over the last couple of years, really what we've started to realize that is that actually there aren't inherently good behaviors and inherently bad behaviors. There's a whole range of mediating factors that impact on the consequences that are associated with them. And so whilst it's tempting to say do this or don't do this, actually, we have to understand the quality of the relationship between a parent and a child, we have to understand that the child's preferences, how old the child is, past experiences, etc, etc. So, I think that's where maybe it becomes tough to interpret some of the literature and just put it into practice in the way that lots of people would like to with these clear classifications. And I'm I'm sure as Hugh's already learning 15 days into being a parent or or whatever it is, you know, you can do the same thing twice and it can have different outcomes. Um, And, you know, we definitely see that, you know, it's a very individual experience within, within sport parenting.
1: And you mentioned a couple of uh, mediating factors there. I I wonder if you could just give us an example of maybe what you mean by that.
0: So, um, for instance, a... A child might really, really like their parent to attend every competition. They might have a very close relationship, a very secure relationship with their their parent. Um, Their preference might be for their parent to be there, and they see that as supportive. Everything their parent says, whether it's giving them, say, some tactical suggestions or some technical suggestions for that individual child, they they like that. That's what they prefer. They've hopefully had a conversation with their parent, and they know that that's, that's what they would like. For another child, they might find the presence of their parent pressuring. They might feel that, you know, their parent being there communicates some degree of expectation. They may interpret the comments their parents make in in a more negative fashion and actually their preference would be to have no parent present. And actually their parent being absent from competition is for them supportive.
1: Andy, I'm, I'm curious, what's your experience of that as a parent yourself?
3: Well, I think I'd probably look at it from the coach side of things initially, just in terms of, you know, we would, in supporting coaches to work with parents, which is one of the things that obviously we do in my day job quite a lot of the time. You know, you would be starting with the who of the athlete, you know, and really get unpicking that biography. And by unpicking the biography of who you're working with, you start to appreciate the things that Camilla was just talking about there. You know, what other sports do they play? Uh, possibly, what is that relationship between uh, between the parent and the child, or parents? You know, what is the family situation? You know, are the parents open to conversation, or might it be uh, somewhat more of a challenge? And I think that's where coaches really starting to have a look at well, how do I approach uh, the topic of engaging with parents a bit better? Mm. You know, from a from my point of view in terms of being a parent what i'd like what i'm hoping to do is take some of that learning into into what i do as a sports parent i suppose the challenge was stood on the side of the football pitch uh, a couple of years back there was then sort of the that question that gets asked uh, coach is leaving who wants to step up and step into place can anybody volunteer mm-hmm. Um and that's where that sort of role changed from being, hopefully being a supportive parent to now I'm coaching my child in a team, which presented a whole load of different challenges.
0: So I'm I just really interested in what Andy mentioned there in terms of, you know, from a coach perspective, making sure you get to know that the, the athlete or the child that you're working with and then expanded there to the importance of getting to know the parent and that would be one of the key things we would know from the literature for a long time and and you you set up Pete calling this group this heterogeneous group of people sport (laughs) parents and as soon as we classify them as sport parents we we have an image that's sort of a homogeneous person you know there's a certain stereotype around what that is but we know that parents are. Individuals and they all have different past experiences themselves, they have different understanding, they bring different knowledge. Um, And so, you know, just as a coach would go about trying to understand an individual child or, you know, an adolescent, understanding the parent and recognizing that they bring different experiences and different skills and working with them as an individual is really, really important. You know, I've already found since I became a parent, the number of times I'm just referred to as mum. And it's almost, it feels dismissive that the people I'm interacting with aren't trying to know me as a person, I've just become Mm -hmm. mum. And when we talk about sport parents, it's the same sort of approach. You're now just a a group of people that we're classifying, you know, together rather than saying, actually, you're an individual who can help, who can volunteer, who can bring your own knowledge and, and experiences.
2: So, you know, I'm just aware that some of our listeners Uh, don't have a background in psychology and also I'm trying to bluff the fact that I can't remember what homogeneous means so uh, (laughs) (laughs) could could you explain that for the the people like me who maybe can't remember (laughs) what big words mean please
0: I I, I was really just trying to sound fancy no just trying to make the distinction between treating everyone the same and assuming everyone's you know the same um, versus everyone's different so, you know, obviously when we're talking about sport parents, if you will, if we were going to categorise them within that group of individuals, there's multiple differences. Um, and rather than just assuming everyone's the same, which is unfortunately what in the past has been the approach to working with, not dealing with, working with parents has been, you know, very much, we can just treat everyone the same, but we, you, we need to see the individual.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about treating everyone the same as parents, but the opening gambit from both of you was just the complexity of understanding the biography from from Andy and also understanding actually the messiness or com- com- complexity of, you know, it depends on the parent-child relationship, it depends on the action, and actually it depends on the, the, the context and as well as that the, the consequences, both good and bad, of the same action could be different so yeah this is going to be one of those podcasts Pete where it gets a bit messy so uh yeah what are your thoughts Pete?
1: I think I think it could yeah um again you know I I have I've deliberately set this up in terms of the sport parent being this kind of uh overburdening um person who's kind of interfering with their child's sport and kind of is a a pain for the coach to deal with just as a way of kind of setting up this conversation to talk about some of some of that complexity that, that Camilla and Andy have both I've both mentioned but i am going to stick with it because I, I like this this image um and it reminds me of um you know when i was when i was a little bit younger i used to go and watch my little brother playing football and he must have been like 10 11 something like that maybe even younger and i remember watching a game one time this was up in gateshead and uh, i remember watching one of the parents just yelling and screaming at this one kid like he was a goalkeeper and he'd made a mistake right he'd let the goal in or something and even me just saying that I can guarantee that you have an image in your mind of what's going on in this scene right so the parent is screaming at this kid because he's made a mistake and this kid was like bawling like crying and the parent just wouldn't let up and as a you know I've, I've, I've been a basketball coach in my time and I've seen this sort of thing before as well and I guess the point that I'm making or the question that I want to get to is if I'm a coach, and Andy, you sort of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but if I'm a coach and I'm working hard to create a certain environment or a certain culture within my team or within my club, how do I how do I approach a parent like that? Um, is it even my job to do that? But how do I approach a parent like that and bring them on board with the way that i'm trying to to, to do things
3: uh, to me it it comes down to uh, sort of expectations and how the coach uh outlines expectations not only for behaviors of players so you, you talked about creating an environment um you know and uh, the coach being important in terms of uh, understanding what type of environment they want to create how the players might uh contribute to that how the coach themselves contribute it plus other people in if you're fortunate enough to have a coaching team um but then conversations with and and collaborative conversations with parents about what does that look and feel like on the sideline um so you know that might be uh you know it would be possibly one of the things you'd address in a sort of a parent or a team meeting uh, maybe at the start of a season you know i, I recall when i started coaching the the junior football team. It's like, well, you know, let's get together and talk about um, the expectations from me as a coach. So uh, what were we trying to achieve? What was, how are we going to organize things like substitutes during the game, you know, trying to have sort of equalish playing time for all other players, Um, uh, that it was about the process in terms of individual development and not necessarily about winning. And with that comes, well, what are the expectations from the parents? I think if you set up those expectations, and some of that is around what is expected and what's not expected. So you see plenty of signs around, you know, supportive from the sideline and not overly coaching uh, because it's the coach's responsibility to do some of the the coaching and it's the parents to provide some support. But Mm -hmm. notwithstanding all of that, you know, parents will become overly excited. It's a game of football. You know, they... They see what uh, what happens in the Premier League, and possibly they see what some of the coaches do, in the managers do in the Premier League, and sort of think that that is that's what's required. And I think those challenging some of those assumptions, um, and being strong enough that if you see behaviour that isn't acceptable, to be willing to you know have a conversation, and that's tough. It can be really tough, just in terms of saying, well, actually, we've spoken about this. Um, you know, we want we want support. But we certainly don't want negative stuff coming from the sideline, and actually just an abundance of noise might be hugely distracting to players. Mm-hmm.
0: i I just interested Andy. you mentioned um, early on in that that response there around the importance of the environment, and for me, that's a really key one here. Um, when we When we look at the literature and when we talk to parents and i've I've had the great fortune of talking to a few thousand parents around around this topic now is it's very easy when we look at the sidelines to, to place individual blame. And I, I'm in no way implying the situation you've just described there, Pete, is a, is a positive one. If you've got a child <laughs> crying, that's clearly not what any of us want to be achieving. But mm. we know that youth sport is incredibly emotionally charged, rightly or wrongly, but it is. The environment is, as, as Andy said, Um, people get excited and the environment or the culture that we create has such an impact on behavior and I think you know Andy made such an important point about one of the first things you need to do is consider the environment you're creating as a coach as other parents are you getting everyone really hyped up are we implying these are really important games because we know that the more importance that's placed on a match the more likely parents are to become more vocal, etc., and, and understanding the environment we're creating and how that might impact on behaviours, is is really really important. And then in terms of your question, Pete, whether it's appropriate for a coach to have that conversation, I would just take one step back and and probably encourage the coach to first check in with the child, because the parent-child relationship is a very complicated one and. Just observing behaviors on the sideline gives you an insight of maybe ninety minutes, perhaps once a week, into the relationship between the parent and the child, and actually understanding from the child's perspective, maybe what's going on more broadly, whether they want you to to intervene in that situation. I think is an, an important check as well. And then, yeah, like Andy mentioned, stepping up and having the conversation if it's deemed appropriate, you know, would be something to do. But it's it's not easy. And the more you can set up expectations and the more you can have those conversations early in the season and continually check in and make sure you as a coach are creating and reinforcing the environment through your own behaviors and through the conversations you have is is really important.
1: It's difficult, isn't it? Because as you've both alluded to, it's a difficult conversation to be to have because there's the line between your role as a coach and their role as a, a sort of parent of somebody who's part of your team. And then there's the the possibility that you're stepping over and perhaps commenting on their parenting skills or parenting choices, which I'm pretty sure we can all agree is a very, a very difficult, uh perhaps dangerous territory to step into, maybe.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really in it's incredibly hard because a lot of parenting happens in the public domain where it's witnessed, but a lot of parenting doesn't. And so to step in and comment solely based on interactions that we're observing without understanding, you know, broader histories, relationship qualities, does put you in, in you know, a difficult, um, a difficult position. You know, and an important point to, to recognise is that, you know, parents... Can engage in different practices and different parenting styles in different cultures and based on their um, expectations of how they want to introduce their child to, to society, etc. And so we have to be careful when we're observing parents and then passing judgment on what they're doing that we're not imposing our own worldview and our own cultural interpretations onto that parenting mm-hmm. um, as well.
3: Yeah, I think one one of the other areas we've looked at is helping to support coaches in terms of not necessarily managing parents, but coming up with ways in which they can engage parents, which might be not a distraction, but give them something to do on the sidelines. So there's been some great ideas coming from lots of the different lockdown um, sort of webinars and, and support that coaches have had. So, you know, some examples would be, you actually give them a task. So counting you know, something that you're doing uh, from a process point of view in the game. So I record you know, how many times have we got four or five players in a box? So count those, actually give parents like a, a notepad and pen and do a little bit of basic notation analysis. It's amazing sort of how much they got involved in that, which sort of distracted them from what they might have normally been doing, which was possibly distracting some of the players, coaching a little bit, but then that also sort of brought them into, well, what are we trying to achieve today? And it might not just be about winning the game. It's actually trying to improve some tactical aspects of it. Um, but that was certainly an element of, of just trying to bring parents on the journey um, that the coach and the team is going on.
0: Andy, I, I love that as a suggestion. And it's something that we've definitely been talking about ever since I started doing research in this area about actually Giving parents something to do that allows them to be part of the team because parents are a really valuable resource here. And you know they're giving up their time, they're standing on the sidelines. You know, if there are things you can do that allow them to help, you know that's really useful. So not only is it a distraction, but it it helps them to feel respected and it helps them to feel valued. And actually, as a parent, when you feel respected and valued, you're much more likely to buy into the culture and the norms of, of the team. So i really like the the giving tasks particularly if they're tasks of value I'm not a huge fan of just do something just for a distraction because usually you can find something that that you know that's really useful and it also ensures that there's communication between a coach and a parent so in the past and it's still present in lots of situations the coach has said I'm the coach parents stay at arm's length I'm not going to tell you what we're working on I don't want you to know what the tactics are you know I'm in charge with you know I'm leading this competition this match etc but actually if coaches have a conversation with parents before a game and say you know this is the tactic we're working on or this is what we've been doing in training and this is what we're going to try and try and work on can you keep check on this can you see how many times we do it etc straight away you've brought parents into the game you've given them something to help distract them from maybe some of the emotions but you've also given them the key information on which they can then provide feedback after a game which is useful to you as a coach because you cannot tell a parent not to talk to their child about their performance in a game because a parent is inherently going to talk to their child. You can't ban all communication as much as people would like it. And children often like talking about the game with their parent, but often the parent doesn't know what to talk about because we haven't told them what, what the child's working on or they've not been allowed to watch training, so they don't know what's going on. So actually if you give information to parents and you bring them in, you can have a you know, parents and children can have much more fruitful conversations after games as well.
1: Because the, the, the normal question is, you know, did you win?
0: And, and if you don't know anything else to say, if you have no idea that actually for the last week they've been working on mm. passing wide or whatever, I, that's a generic sport reference to any sport, <laughs> um, you know, then think got you wouldn't you wouldn't know to comment on it, would you? But actually if a coach has said, Oh, this week we're working on this, then a parent knows feedback on it. And even better, if a coach says, this week we're working on leadership or teamwork or something that goes beyond the technical or tactical. If you're worried as a coach about parents feeding back on that, if you couldn't talk more broadly, then you're really helping a parent to, you know, use sport to gain a whole help their child gain a whole range of benefits.
3: And just picking up on what Camilla was saying there, I mean we'd be well, certainly, what I've explored in terms of sharing those those goals, so we might be working with a group of players in terms of their understanding of moving from sort of more outcome-focused goals to more process-focused goals. You know, more often than not, um, parents would be the ones possibly undoing some of that. So someone comes off the pitch and it's like, "Oh, did you score? You know, how many shots did you have? You know, what was you know again, did you win?" Rather than actually. Uh, being able to share well you know, today I'm working on this particular area of my game or or as I mentioned there, possibly an area of leadership or some communication angles or support of other players, that then switches things entirely. And that, that that reflective conversation, I think equipping players and parents to have really productive reflective conversations, I think is a is a huge step in the right direction.
0: And understanding what the child is trying to get out of the The game or the match or the situation as well is really important because one of my bugbears is this idea that as a parent, you should just say, oh, did you enjoy it? Well, actually, if you're a child or an adolescent and you've committed hours and hours of training, in your mind, this is a relatively important competition or, you know, you really want to try and demonstrate a good performance. And then you come off and you may be disappointed because you didn't perform and your parents said, did you enjoy it? at that moment, that could be the entirely wrong thing to say, you know, so these, this idea that you can make generic statements in all situations isn't right either. So you know, if you can have an an understanding from a coach of what they're trying to achieve, and you can have an understanding from the child of what they're trying to achieve, then as a parent, you're, you're armed with the right information to have good conversations.
1: We're here with Dr. Camilla Knight and Andy Bradshaw and we're talking about sports parenting and already we're only sort of 20-25 minutes in and we've heard some absolutely fantastic examples of the complexity of sport parenting, how behaviours aren't necessarily just good or bad, there's a whole layer of complexity underpinning that and we've heard some really fantastic suggestions as to how coaches can engage parents and arm them with the skills to be able to uh, engage their, their, their kids even more. Hugh, what have you been hearing? What are you taking from all of this?
2: You know, what really struck me in the last uh, dialogue between uh, Camilla and Andrew there, um, and I love it when the guests come on and just have their own conversation and, and we can sit with popcorn and listen because it makes our job so easy. But what really struck me was this idea of shared mental models and goal setting, which we covered in in season one um and the idea that you know you want to know what the kids goals are for the sport so that you can then question and feedback to them on that you want to know what the parents uh goals are for the kid as well so that you can help engage them and and, and and create this idea of i know what they want but also then i know what the shared mental model is of of what they think they want and what my idea is so that we can create a good uh you know a good atmosphere and culture so it really is about sharing our dreams and hopes, I suppose, with each other. But I have a curiosity here. Being in the world of sport, I know loads of people who get into it uh, and are coaches and things like that and have various different expertise and qualifications. And I think that sport's an important thing. I want my child to participate in sport, but I also want them to do well and have a good coach. I don't know, like, whenever they get to the age of taking up sport, should I get involved with the local team as a coach or should i just actually as a parent step away completely and say like you're your own person you know you do your own thing if you want to be some sort of artist uh, instead of a a sports person go do that that's cool too like how much involvement because everyone who's listened to this most likely has some involvement or understanding with sport and wants that but should you get involved and be your kids coach or should you not should you step away completely and let them develop as an individual what are your thoughts on that guys and andrew like i'm definitely looking at you in this one because i think uh, this is a bit of a what have you been through kind of <laughs> moment for you
3: no I, uh, definitely and you know should i well i mean i have whether that's the right answer or not um but i suppose it's interesting the journey that, that my eldest has been through so I've been involved, as I mentioned before, in in hockey uh, in terms of coaching. Obviously, being away from home quite a bit as she was growing up, she she knew sort of my role and what I was doing in it in some of my hockey coaching career. Um, but showed very little interest uh, at all um, for probably the first ten years or so. Um, so I explored some other things. Uh, she did some climbing for a bit. She did a bit of horse riding. Um, athletics, so quite a lot of individual activities. Um, and, you know, it was always one of those sort of frustrations of, you know, does she not like the team angle? You know, what is it? You know, but I certainly made a very conscious decision not to force anything. You know, she was she was in that environment, so she would visit some of the training, whether it was at a local club or whether it was sort of England session, she would see what's going on. So she sort of knew what it was all about. And then, you know, just interestingly enough, just the way that things happen and the way that obviously individuals um, you know, are influenced by others as well, a few more of her friends start to get involved in the local football team. So that was the, the in. It wasn't necessarily I want to play football, Dad. It was actually my friends want to play football. I want to be with them more. It wasn't football for football's sake. It was actually just, um, you know, the social aspects of it. Now, getting involved in then becoming the coach of that team, you know, you were caught between uh, the, the previous coach leaving, uh, there had not been anyone to take over, and me having an element of experience in a team game that was probably pretty transferable. And I was definitely caught in there, well, I could probably do an okay job of this. Um, now, bearing in mind that our set of results, once I took over, was pretty horrendous, whether that is actually true, that I could do an okay job. Um, <laughs> we had a We had a losing season, like a fully losing season until the final game where we drew a game. But you know again that was that was around me changing my expectations around what what coaching meant. You know we had more players at the end of the season than we did at the start. Um, we had more people we had more young girls playing that have really not not been involved in the sport previously, possibly. The challenge for some of the parents who might have been involved with other siblings playing sports elsewhere was struggling with that sort of we're losing every week, um, and that was where that the conversations between us and them were. Well, let's just you know reassess what the what what the purpose of this team is here. It's it, it, of, of course we would like to win, um, but we are on a we're on a journey with girls that have never particularly played at all before. Um, so it's going to take time it's going to take a whole lot more support than you might realize and that is going to be crucial in um picking up from loss after loss after loss and, and carrying on going but you know they they coped with that and you know it was it was a very uh, rewarding journey and challenging journey for myself
0: um thanks for sharing your story there Andy it sounds like you're an incredibly reflective um person as as a parent and a coach and and obviously you adapted as as needs be and I think what you highlight there is the importance of knowing your child and so in response to your question here when you say should I coach for me that's got to be a conversation with your child about whether your child would like you to be involved and it should be an ongoing conversation because they might like you to be involved until the reality of you being involved hits um, or they might not want you involved and then they realize that actually they'd prefer you maybe over another coach. So for me, it's definitely always about a constant process of reflection and dialogue and there's no don't do it or do do it. Um, You know, I know some parents, as Andy's mentioned, in his own situation where it's worked really well. It's facilitated stronger relationships with the child. It's given opportunities for many children to play that wouldn't have, wouldn't have been there. And then on the other side, there's, you know, I'm aware of situations where it just hasn't worked out. I think, you know, the key is what would your child like? And that obviously then leads into a question around what age you're thinking your child is, is going to start sport. Cause you said when they start sport, So they might start in some recreational, very laid back sport when they're four or five. Um, Or you might be talking more, more kind of organized sport when they're 10, 11, 12, um, that sort of age. So, you know, there's a few things I would say you want to, you want to consider, but it's definitely not a do or don't. It's uh, an ongoing reflection around what works for you and your child and your family.
2: Hmm. It's, it's interesting because as a sports psych, one of the things that occasionally happens is you get contacted by the parent to work with the child, and as soon as that happens, uh, my my gut reaction is get the get the child to email me because I don't I'm not going to work through a parent. If the if the child wants to speak to me, they can you know uh, make the contact as opposed to the parent. And I think there's a lot of this pushy parents, but that actually even happens more so with coaches who are parents as well then soliciting sports psych support and it just gets very messy very quickly. Um I think, mm. you know, the context around those those answers of actually considering it over the lifespan is a great takeaway point. Um because undoubtedly it will change. Um Pete, have you any thoughts on you know coaching here and the difference between elite and and you know I suppose recreational or participation sport and coaching. What are you thinking about this?
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny, Hugh, because it reminds me of uh, something that was in the news a couple of years ago. And, you know, you're talking about pushy parents and the idea of elite youth sport as well. Um, and I think it was, it was 2019, Manchester City came under, under fire. And they're, they're by no means the only ones, but they came under fire for having an under fives elite team. Now, we can get into the idea of elite youth sport and how much of a nonsense that is. But, you know, they were training like three times a week and treating these kids like professionals, allegedly. Um, But I can look at that and see that it's absolutely madness. Um, Why is it that you think that so many parents are happy for their really young kids to be exposed to that sort of environment? Hugh, you just mentioned, um, you know, parents asking for... Uh, help from sports psychs for their for their kind of really young kids almost as if it's like a professional sport at the age of five you know why do we think that parents are, are so happy for their kids to be exposed to that sort of thing
0: i think it's really i think it's really tough for parents because as soon as you have a child you're in an environment where everything is compare 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 and increasingly within society there's been this idea that the the more sport um, the more organized activities your child in is in the safer they are because they're around more adults who will keep them protected and you're doing a really good job of parenting because you've got them all you know where they are at all times and it's very regulated and it's it's the antithesis of everything that actually we know children would like you know freedom and just active play and opportunities to be creative and, and explore but the messaging out there is very much you're a good parent if you are providing opportunities and you're encouraging this and whilst people are offering that whilst people are offering an under five team and there are coaches who are willing to say to parents this is a good thing and you you know your child will do well here I can understand why a parent would be drawn into that that culture because they're now in an organized sport there's people who are in a power type position in a coaching role telling me this is something that's good there's a number of people encouraging it and we assume and in the sports site community we know a lot about the issues of early specialization and you know this pressure around elite sport that information isn't as broadly circulated outside of our community as maybe we we think you know to assume that every parent is aware of the consequences of this early specialization, I think, is, is to assume a bit too much. So, so for me, it's, it's the culture, the responsibility has to be with the coaches and the organizations who are consist, consistently, you know, offering those opportunities. And then also there's a role for, for us maybe as a community to make sure as much as possible when we are engaging with parents, we're, we're helping them to be aware of the potential negative impacts.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, because we have a a, a lot of sports psychologists and trainee sports psychs listening to this. And, you know, I think that's a really important point that you've just brought up that lots of the messages that we as a community are familiar with aren't necessarily, uh, as, as well known outside of sports psychology. So perhaps it's part of our role or a really important part of our role to educate parents and to work with coaches, to educate parents on some of these, some of these issues. Um, because the, the reality is with this early specialization, especially in, in kind of some sports, that most kids are released uh, before they're anywhere near making it. So the promise is, you know, your five-year-old is showing promise. They're going to be the next best thing. Bring them along to our elite sports academy, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I've, I've got some statistics here, which I'm going to pretend that I know, but really I'm just reading them. So out of all the boys who went to a football academy at the age of nine, less than half of 1% actually make it. Children at football academies, and I I can't remember exactly where I read this, so if I've stolen this from somebody, I apologize, but children at football academies are more likely to get hit by a meteorite than to succeed as professionals. You know, in the US as well, we've got, for men, about three, like literally three out of 10,000 male high school basketball players will be drafted into the NBA. That's about 0.03%. For women, the numbers are similar. One out of about 5,000 players, 0.2% will be drafted into the WNBA. Maybe one in 200, 0.5% of high school senior boys playing interscholastic baseball will be drafted by a major league baseball team. These numbers are infinitesimally small. And we have the problem of what's called identity foreclosure. Yeah, so a child develops an identity around being a footballer or a basketball player or whatever the sport is, but hasn't really explored those other options. So when they're eventually told they're not good enough, which, let's be realistic, is like 98% of all kids, that can have some really devastating effects. My question to to, to both of you really is, well, what's the parent's role here? Well, first of all, what's the parent's role, but how can psychologists, again, work with clubs and coaches and parents to address some of these these real issues.
3: Can I jump in first? I, I suppose you, you're saying what's the parents' role. I mean, there's definitely a the, the coach role in this as well. So you talked about um, psychology uh, or the work behind psychology not necessarily uh, uh, feeding out into that, that wider um, wider world, um, but the understanding around talent identification and development. You know, even uh, coaches across a range of different sports appreciating that. Um, the constraints that early specialisation will, will put on child development. You know, really looking to try and encourage you know more players in better environments for longer would be you know, a, a a definite sort of watchword for what our um, talent development systems should look like. And I suppose what that comes back to is if parents have. More of an appreciation, and possibly aren't drawn in by the lure of getting a Premier League contract or playing playing in the playing in the NBA in the states. Um, what they might start to consider is, well, actually, the breadth of opportunities. So enabling uh, your child to to sample a variety of sports and understanding that that will that will have benefits and transferability across those sports, not just for the one that at that particular moment in time they might favour. Um, but then that comes back to all of the things that we've just spoken about, you know, who's doing the sport, you know, is the, is the parent living the the child's sporting journey vicariously? You know, is it, I want them to get involved in a sport because that was my sport and I didn't succeed, uh, pushing them down a particular route because, uh, you know, that's what, you want to report in your, you know, your parents WhatsApp group or on Facebook and you want to actually get into this academy, you know, that that's what they've achieved. So I suppose what I'm starting to get back to is that sort of better dissemination of a whole lot of what might be rooted in research, but then what we're hoping might start to become a little bit more common sense around actually enabling your child to try a load of things, you know, which, which might mean that they end up trying something that, um, Know, that they might not have considered before, but they might thoroughly enjoy. Yeah, you know, they might never be world class or go to Olympics, but they might then find a, uh, you know, a sporting or a physical activity, you know, a hobby that is going to keep them engaged for life.
0: I just um, have a few different points. My first one is I like your meteor reference. Pete, Mine is always, you've got more chance of being struck by lightning than becoming a, <laughs> an elite athlete. So it's always good to have those those to go to. But <laughs> um, picking up on, on Andy's point there around sampling and the literature definitely supporting that and hopefully common sense supporting that as well. I, I think we do have to be slightly careful with not just placing another set of demands on parents, which is now don't encourage your child to do one sport where actually maybe it's local and you can keep going quite easily. Now you've got to find multiple sports to get your kid to and there's the potential that you overschedule them in an attempt to get them sampling all these different things. So we do have to be careful around the messaging because some parents can only afford one sport. They can only, whether it's time or um, finance, or you know, balancing multiple demands from different children and work, and so we also don't want to set them up with a message that if your child only does one sport for for whatever reason, that's that's also bad, you know. So I, I think we do need to be careful with there, with that. And actually, what I am a really big advocate of is multi sports from an early age, like within one venue. So maybe your child goes to a football academy, but at that football academy within a training session, one day they might play rugby or one day they might do some gymnastics-type work, you know, so Mm -hmm. that actually there's a convenience for the parent that this is the local club, this is something I can get my child to, but they're still able to to sample a a number of sports because we do have to be careful that we're not talking to a certain group of people who are able to facilitate engagement in multiple opportunities there. Um, The other thing that, that I wanted to pick up on is, We've fallen into the trap in this conversation of assuming that the measure of success through an academy is becoming a professional player, which is how we tend to judge those academies. But, but actually, as sports psychs, as coaches, one of, and as parents, one of the key things we can do is try and shift how we're assessing success through an academy. So, what only one player might get a professional contract, but actually by having the opportunities within the academy to travel, you've maybe got a better understanding of geography or you've had an opportunity to engage with different people and gain life experiences that maybe you wouldn't have had access to. You know, so I think we also have to be careful in terms of how we're communicating what you should get out of, out of an academy and maybe as a community we can also work to shift, you know, how we're evaluating success within those settings, so that when children are released, which inevitably they're going to be, it's not necessarily seen as the as devastating as it currently is, because they're able to leave with all these other wins that they've had, not just you know the fact that they didn't get their professional contract.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that's a really important point, and. I think the point that I was that I was getting at was more, I suppose, that if their identity is tied up with that success and being a footballer or a basketballer or whatever, then that's when we can end up with, with with problems. So it's interesting hearing you both talk about exposing kids to multiple sports and not just kind of tying it into one sport. Whereas, you know, Camilla, I think the point that you just made is a really, really valid one, that it's not just about the sport. It's exposing children to multiple things i can't think of a better word than things yeah. uh, multiple experiences multiple things so that it's not just about the sport so you mentioned the travel and the communication and all of those different types of experiences that aren't tied up with sport at all and maybe that's part of the parent's role as well rather than just okay well let's kind of let's you know take you and, and do badminton and football and tennis and whatever um let's take you and do some well again we're kind of falling into the trap of making them do lots of different things but you know exposure to music and theater and reading and, and, and whatever. Um I think that's kind of probably the the, the point that I was making. Did, did you want to come back on that as well?
0: No, I just I, I I'd actually forgotten in the question that you talked about identity foreclosure and, and I um I, I agree and I think one of the roles a parent can play is even if it's within their sport, but hopefully through exposure to other opportunities such as those ones you've just listed, as a parent you can emphasize different things too and you can encourage different activities. So Yes, you might be playing a lot of sport, but as a parent, can you then facilitate the opportunities for those teammates to come over and you go off and do something else? Or can you talk about the different benefits that you've got? I always come back to, I grew up playing tennis and my mum always used to say, oh, the reason that you do well at exams is because you've learned to concentrate from playing tennis. And to this day, I still believe that. But <laughs> the reason I can concentrate is because I grew up playing tennis, because she said it so many times. It
1: must be true then. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, you know, she's my parent, of course. Um, so... The you know I think as a parent the, the way you communicate and you, the way you talk about what you're getting from the sport can also help to diversify what you you think you you're gaining.
1: Yeah. Hugh, you you you've been sat there quietly listening. What what are your thoughts on all of this?
2: I suppose the strong opinion that uh, has been shared to me and maybe I hold it as well is that the idea of an under five uh, elite football team uh, and, and especially where underage players have been brought from different countries and leaving their family is actually just a legal form of child trafficking um so put that in your pipe <laughs> and smoke it <laughs> 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 is is what what i think a professional sport that does that but look we're all about uh varied opinions here so i'll move swiftly on um <laughs> <laughs>
3: probably best <laughs>
2: But but it is interesting because if you go back to like the incident with Su- Suarez, I think I'm saying that night that correctly, where he bit the uh, opponent. Lu-
1: Lu- Luis Suarez.
2: Suarez, that's the one. Apologies yeah. for my my linguistic skills are not good. But again, you know there was the what a demon would do this, and I think we've all done things you know in the heat of the moment in sport that are that are not the way we should or want to behave. But also there was a story. Yeah, I've never bitten anybody. You obviously didn't care enough, um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think the thing is that if you look at the backstory of his upbringing and being isolated from his family and going off to play professional football, you imagine how does that actually affect the development of somebody's socialization skills and how do they develop and learn right from wrong, good from bad without this kind of external authority where they're judged by more than just their sport? You know, because a a football academy is only going to judge you in your sport. It's not going to judge you in whether or not you're a good human, which is what your role of your parents is. Camilla's nodding the head there. Go on, Camilla. Shoot me down.
0: No, I just, I've had the good fortune to work in a few football academies. And I think there are some examples of things that aren't great. But I do think that sometimes they get a bad press. I think they, you know, the situations I've been in, I've seen, Children have opportunities that they wouldn't have normally had, maybe because they come from areas of high deprivation, etc. And I definitely see them being held to a high standard as people. You know, there's an expectation around how they conduct themselves, that they're attending at school, that they're engaging appropriately with teachers. So I would say that in some instances, or at least the instances I've been in, that that being in an academy has really been beneficial in reinforcing some right from wrong, if you will. Now, I'm not saying that was the case in the situation you're talking about. But, but I do think it's easy to judge from the outside. um, But I do think there's some academies that are doing, trying to do a really good job around person development, as well as athlete development.
2: Right, Hugh,
1: Hugh, I always do the breaks, Hugh. Do you want to do one?
2: Yeah, okay, Pete. So thanks for putting me on the spot. Um, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, which is the 80% Mental podcast, um, that's the lovely noises in your ears right now, you can get more of our episodes at 80%mental.com, and you can also read an article that was featured in the BPS PsychMag where myself and Pete were interviewed about the first season of the podcast. And don't forget, we like coffee. It keeps us alive. Uh, you can donate a cup of coffee to us as well if you would like. How was that, Pete?
1: That was awesome. I think I think you need to start doing more of these.
2: Okay, okay. Well, I suppose uh, let's wrap up this uh, episode. We've got a, a question that I want to throw at the guys. Um, it's quite big and messy. Um, and they can unpick it because they're here to work for us. Um, so my question, <laughs> my question is, um, I want to know, like, what are your top, top bits of advice for parents? Um, and similarly, I also want to get a bit of an insight as to what you think about, uh, parents deliberately exposing their children to adversity. Um, I can think of one really good example of Richard Branson, where his mother said, uh, your auntie needs you uh, to go and dig her garden. Um, there's the bike, off you go. And he had to cycle uh, maybe, I think it was over 20 miles at a certain age to his auntie's house, and then do a load of manual labor and cycle back home and then get sent off on his next chore. And I just think that was quite an intense, uh, an intense bit of adversity at that age, as he recounts it in his book. But what are your ideas to exposing children to adversity? And then what are your top tips or uh, that you'd like to see parents do? Like here, you're a parent, go try this. I'll, uh, I'll start with that one,
3: uh, Hugh, if you don't mind. Um, so in anticipation of this question, and I know I know I keep coming back to, well, what would the coach do in this? But I suppose that's the combination of coach-parent bit that I'm, that I'm bringing from an experience point of view. I, I reread some of the Talent Needs Trauma literature, uh, in the past couple of days, just to, to reacquaint myself with that, because obviously that would talk to um, uh, talented athletes experiencing uh, challenges, um, what they might describe as traumatic events during their, their talent journey, um, and not necessarily getting hung up on whether it's the word trauma or not. That's the important bit here, but actually challenges, and the challenges are uh, enable um, the development of. Of useful and productive social and psychological skills. I think the, the, the critical thing there is actually what the coach's role and/or what the parents' role might be in structuring what those challenges are, thinking about them. So possibly you know, playing a player up an age group um, or uh, playing a player out of position, um, but doing so in a planned way, and doing so in a way that enables the player to reflect on how they felt that experience was. Um, so not just throwing an experience or, you know, a challenging situation at a player and just hoping that they cope with it. Um, and that was, you know, much of that research will talk to, it's not just how many challenges you you throw out there, but what are the skills that the players are developing? So that would be my view on possibly parents putting children or, you know, thinking right this is the right thing to develop my kid it's like well actually what are you doing there do you have a sit down afterwards you know is it in a planned way are you looking to actually try and achieve something or are you just doing that because you think it's right
0: I just pick up on your point there Andy Um, I think children are going to encounter challenges I, I think it's very rare to get through life and not encounter any challenge I think if I was to change the question slightly that you ask you it's exactly to the point that Andy made there it's not necessarily about having to put challenges in front of a child but it's not removing them and just smoothing the path so you know it's about as a parent recognizing that this might be a tough situation that your child's in and and what counts as tough will change for different children but exactly as Andy said as a parent I think the role then is how do you help your child navigate it so letting them become maybe a little bit frustrated help you know letting them try and work it out but then as a parent being there to support and to debrief and to reflect after that you know I I see that even with a 15 month old, you know, it's so tempting when he's struggling to get his toys to work to just step in and go like, this is how you do it. And actually, even at this age going, no, no, he needs to learn to work some of this out on his own. And then, you know, at the point where the toy gets thrown, because he's had enough, that's when I'll step in and, and try and help. So I think, you know, from a parent's perspective, it's maybe more about being aware of when challenges do occur, and then how you support your child through that as opposed to, I'm going to actively seek really hard things for for my child to do. Um, so that would that would be my thoughts around the the, the sort of the challenging adversity type situations. In terms of the tips, which was your other question, I'm just conscious, and this is rare for me, that we've come to an end of a conversation and we haven't actually talked much about the parents' experience and a lot of the literature that we would would read or a lot of the, the research that I've done has actually highlighted some of the challenges that parents have and just how tough it can be as a parent trying to navigate the demands of youth sport on top of the demands of just being a parent and then just being a person who maybe has a job and you know all of the societal expectations. So, so one of my first tips for parents is very much around, can you take some time to identify the demands that you're encountering and work out if you've got strategies, or if you need strategies to better manage some of those demands, and seeking out support for you as a parent, because the more supported you are as a parent, and the more capable you feel of managing the different demands you've got, the easier it's going to be for you to engage in the ways that you want with your child. Because I'm sure as parents, we've all aware of the situation that as our own stress beholds, our ability to emotionally regulate and to respond to our child as we want, maybe diminishes. And that's obviously definitely the situation within sport. So my first tip is, you know, as a parent, do you have the strategies and access to support to be able to manage the demands? My second one is talk to your child, just talk to them as much as you can. And if it gets awkward as they get to a teenage age, think about different situations where you can talk to them, whether that's out for a walk or sitting next to them so it's not kind of face to face but you know regular communication so that you can stay on the the same page would be would be my other my other key thing
2: excellent um uh sorry i was just going to say excellent camilla that's uh you know that's really helpful stuff and i think it's important that you highlight the the parent's ability to cope as a parent and you know their performance as a parent is is something they should consider and can you actually cope in, with the level of stress and whatever else you have going on in your life? So a bit of self-care. I think the, the message is always put the oxygen mask on yourself first uh, before you put it in someone else. Uh, Andy, uh, what are your top tips and thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd pick up on the, the, la- the second one that um, Camilla made around you know, talking to your child um, and working through with them the types of interactions that, that they want. You know, so we spoke about conversations in the car after a match or after training. I think you know we get caught up into a whole lot of assumptions around I need to be there. Uh, you know, that's, that's what my child requires. Um, so just opening up those those two-way conversations as 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 difficult as that might be at times or it might be really easy, but open up the dialogue and, and really just asking what what your child wants out of this and wants from you. Uh, And I suppose the other thing would be if the coach who may be working with your children isn't as open as possibly we've been suggesting um, throughout the last hour or so and doesn't have sessions, is is possibly being brave enough to open up the conversation with them and say, you know, I'd really like to know a little bit more. Um, There there are many coaches that might push you back at that point and say, look, this is my role. You know, I'm going to get on the coaching. You get on standing on the sideline. But there are also very many that would be absolutely keen to hear from you and might not have been able to find the way to to have that conversation themselves so just being willing to uh, to open yourselves up, possibly be a bit vulnerable there and just say look i'm really keen you know possibly to help possibly to support um but just open up that that conversation stream as well
0: that point about vulnerability andy it reminds me of something it is really easy for us to say talk to your child and and you know, find out what they want. But as a parent, you you have to be prepared that they might tell you that they don't like something that you're doing or they might want you to do something different to what you're doing. And that could be hard to hear as a as a parent. So you know when you're having those conversations, the conversation in of itself is 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 worthless if you can't then act off what they've said. So being prepared to maybe hear something you didn't want to hear or that wasn't what you were anticipating and then changing your behavior um, as a result of that conversation would be key.
2: You know, I think those are excellent points to finish up on. And, you know, it reminds me of actually telling my parents that uh, I didn't want to be an Irish dancer, uh, which was uh, partly because I didn't like the kilt. um, But yeah. And, you know, it didn't seem that much fun. And now I actually regret it because uh, I probably would be a hell of a lot better in my feet if, if I could have danced. Um, but, Pete, what are you taking away from this? I'm definitely a better parent, and I think listeners should um, definitely send this podcast to somebody who's a parent. Or if they think they might be a parent, you know, send it to them anyway and uh, share the love on how to be a better parent because i'm definitely a better parent after listening to this mind you it wouldn't be hard i've only had 15 days of practice pete are you a better parent and uh what are you taking away
1: yeah you've got a long way to go hugh um i i think i think the the last couple of points that we heard there from both of these guys was fantastic um you know i loved andy talking about the idea of putting people in pressure situations and it reminds me a little bit of the, some of the pressure training literature, putting people in pressure situations. Are we doing it for the hell of it, or are we actually equipping people with the skills to be able to handle those situations? Because if we're not giving them the skills to be able to do that, then we're just asking for them to come unstuck, really. And you know, I really loved Camilla's distinction between uh, deliberately putting barriers in place and not removing. The barriers that already exist and allowing people to deal with some of the the struggles and it really does again you know I'm a parent of a three year old and the idea of just letting them struggle and letting them be frustrated and just kind of acknowledging oh I can see you're frustrated by that and understanding helping them to understand that frustration and anger and being annoyed and upset are actually perfectly reasonable normal healthy emotions and we're going to experience them when we face those difficulties so hearing you know these guys talk about those things you know i i, I do feel like that relates to a lot of um my life as a parent of an annoying three-year-old i'll probably edit that bit out so she doesn't hear it when she's older but she knows she's annoying so it's fine. Um, but that, that is, uh, I'm also taken away from this, the image of you as an Irish dancer, Hugh, but maybe that's another episode. Um, but that is pretty much all that we've got time for on this episode of 80% Mental. And I hope that you have enjoyed what you've heard. I just want to give an absolutely massive thanks to our guests for being so utterly brilliant. So thank you, first of all, to Dr. Camilla Knight.
0: Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: And thanks to Andy Bradshaw.
3: Thank you, Hugh, Peter, and Camilla. Uh, yeah, great great hour and
1: 20 minutes spent no
2: thanks to you both and thank you you as well Th- thank you pete uh, you've done an excellent job as co-host uh, we're, we're three three episodes in in season two and it's already uh, off the hook as the kids say
1: do they say that i don't think they say that
2: i don't know i don't know what they say anymore
1: <laughs> i don't think it's what you said um anyway <laughs> Whether you're a coach or a psych or even a parent of a kid who loves sport, I hope that there's been something for you. We've talked about so many things. We've talked about the supportive and pressuring or negative influences that parents can have on their child's sport experience. But we started off by explaining that that's actually a lot more complicated than just good and bad. And we talked about lots of the other influences that determine whether the outcomes of parents' behavior can be positive or negative. We chatted about what coaches and clubs can do to involve parents and engage them in positive ways and how parents can help their kids deal with almost the inevitable disappointment that will come at some stage of their sporting careers. It. Um, it, it, it really has been a fascinating discussion and i hope that you've enjoyed listening to our guests today we'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject too so you can tweet us at EPM Podcast or leave a comment on the website www.80percentmental.com where you can also check out all of our other episodes don't forget to subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and we will see you next time or we won't see you because it's a podcast